Welcome to Watershed Chats, a solution-centric mini-series of the Water People podcast. Here, we connect with folks who are transforming social and environmental challenges through their work and play. This episode is supported by Patagonia, whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to save our home planet. I'm Lauren Hill. My co-host is Dave Rastovich. And today, we're in conversation with longboarding icon Belinda Baggs, who recently co-founded Surfers for Climate to empower and mobilize a sea roots movement for positive climate action. Belinda was a key campaigner in the successful Fight for the Bike campaign and is an ambassador for Take Three for the Sea. As a mother, she's committed to safeguarding the future for the next generation. And through Surfers for Climate, Belinda is calling on all surfers to step into our responsibility to protect our planet ocean. Our podcast comes to you from the coastal land and waters of both the Bundjalung and Gubby Gubby nations. We'd like to acknowledge these traditional custodians and pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. We'd also like to extend that respect to all First Nations people this podcast ripples out toward. I wanted to start by reminiscing a little bit about a time when we were together not long ago on a back beach and we learned about an indigenous story about your homelands around the coal mining town of Newcastle. Do you remember the story that I'm talking about? I do, yes. The one about the redhead cliffs. Yeah, I was wondering if you could recall some of it and the impact it had on you. Oh, definitely. I definitely will not be doing this story justice and probably be missing some of the most spiritual and amazing parts, but... um so we were told this really amazing story about one of the biggest coastal headlands in Newcastle, which is Redhead Beach on a Wabakal country. And ever since I was a little girl, I had this really negative feeling about going there. Like something was always telling me, like, don't go. It's just not the place that you're supposed to be. And so I'd quite often you know, miss opportunities to go surfing at that beach because I was like, mm, just doesn't feel quite right. And yeah, so we were talk- chatting to Andy who was telling us that there's traditional story is that there was a really evil spirit that was captured and buried under, you know, massive amounts of rubble and trees and they just kept piling it up, piling it up, piling it up until finally it created the massive cliff that we know now of, of Redhead Headland at Redhead Beach. And uh, if we released that evil spirit, it'd be like the end of the world and destroy so much that we all loved and so much about the beauty of, of the magnificent ocean and places that we love so much. And it ended up that the, the evil spirit was the coal that was buried deep inside those cliffs. And I think it was such a... For me, it really blew me away to find out that the history of this place and that there is actually this dark presence, but more so that, you know, even back, you know, up to 60,000 years ago, Aboriginal people and, you know, the traditional owners of this land had the foresight to know that coal was was that evil spirit and it had the, the possibility or the potential of, of destroying the planet that we all love so much. So I've spent many, many um, days and weeks and months pondering over over that story. 
Hmm. Yeah, I loved getting to, I mean, I was feeling it too, but also getting to watch you have this sort of re-realization about where you grew up and the feelings you innately had and all of us were feeling just a renewed sense of wonder for the genius, uh, the traditional custodians of this land and how wise and careful they were to manage and to collaborate with the lands. And, and what a reminder that, you know, when we talk about modern climate activism and modern environmentalism, just remembering that it didn't start with Rachel Carson in the U.S. It didn't start with Greta Thunberg. It is an old an ancient practice, this caring for country. Um, and stories like the one we got to hear were just such a wonderful reminder of that for me. Yeah, I'd have to agree. And, you know, just another reminder that we need to constantly keep looking back at, at culture of our country to learn and learn to live as part of country versus from taking from it as well. And that those practices are still here and those people are still here and those songs are being sung and mm. that it isn't a was, it is a now, and it is, it is, yes. is, it is crucial uh, and that the any opportunity to be a very humble listener just like that day on the beach and just listen and absorb that if we are so lucky to be in those positions is something so fortunate is something so uh, wonderful to be to be grateful for and that the story is so integral to the caring you know it's like uh, we have a moment now where we have so much diagnosis of fact a diagnosis of ecosystems and specifics within ecosystems and it almost feels like what we are needing and what a lot of people are achieving is stories around that information, you know, by creating community groups or groups like Surface for Climate that huddle around a specific type of story. And for us, we're all complete surf rats. <laughs> so ours is a coastal and surfing story. And, you know, we have to have our heads screwed on properly when it comes to speaking about science and factual information and data and dancing that line we obviously know you respond to story like all of us because of that story just now. But how have you gone when, when it comes to this period where there's just so much information and you somehow distill that down into a story that helps you manage and then act on that information? I think, as you said, there's so much science and so many facts out there to learn that they sometimes become confusing because you can't use those numbers to relate to your everyday existence and to things that you love and care about so much, even though they do provide us with that, like, really deep insight into what we need to figure out and, and improve on. But I do my best at trying to ignore the facts and figures and numbers as much as I possibly can because A, they're daunting and scary and terrifying. And in a lot of cases, they don't fill me with hope. And so I tend to lean more on the stories of the experiences that we share in the ocean, that we might have in the ocean as individuals, and even, you know, stories of, of other friends and other experiences to help with 
telling impacts of climate change um, to our coastlines and, and expressing thoughts and feelings and also, I guess, more importantly, brushing upon the solutions as well. Mm. Mm. I know that um, in the founding of Surfers for Climate, intersectionality has been a really important tenant of how you've set up the organization. I want to get to that in a minute. But first, um, can you talk us through what your personal impetus was for founding Surfers for Climate with Johnny Abag, style master goofy footer? Ah, Johnny's so incredible. (laughs) Um, So we were on a climate summit trip to Heron Island together. Uh, The Climate Council had put together an array of different characters from, you know, Johnny and I obviously being there as surfers, but to business owners, you know, professional musicians and actors and all these people that they thought would be able to use their platform for good in the climate space. Um, And so we were there really just learning as much as we possibly could. And like I said, all the numbers and facts and figures were really terrifying. And Johnny and I both came away with the same idea that we have to do something no matter what it is. And during that time in Heron Island, we learned as well about how the ocean's not only are really affected by climate change, but also play a really vital role in keeping our planet healthy and functioning. And we're like, well, what better story to tell? Like, who better to talk to that about than surfers? It's, you know, the the centrepiece of what we do and love. And so that's why we thought, you know, creating an organisation where surfers can interact and understand and take action on climate is like the best way that both of us could think about doing something to try and help the situation that we're in at the moment. Uh, Bindi, you'd obviously had lots of interest in climate change issues and ecological social issues before. What made you want to then also zoom in and bring other surfers with you? Did you feel like there was a lack of a voice representing surfers in this area? Definitely think there was. I saw that there was so many amazing organisations telling these climate messages, such as the Climate Council, for example, but none of them were speaking surf. (laughs) None of them were kind of resonating with, like, the broader surf audience and even zoning in on the impacts that, you know, climate change was having to our ocean and talking in more specifics. And so... You know, you also look at Australia and you see that I think statistically in 2016 or something, there was supposedly 3 million surfers in our country, which, as you know, is quite a large percentage of our population. And since 2016, that's at least doubled um, with now every second person I know owning a surfboard. And so... (laughs) We just kind of saw that, like, yeah, absolutely, surfers weren't doing enough and we weren't doing enough to protect the one thing that we love the most, which is the ocean. And so Surfers for Climate is to provide an avenue for all different kinds of surfers from all different walks of life with all different um, opportunities to take action how they would feel most comfortable because we realise that there's, you know, people out there that, 
can take action in different ways. Sometimes it might be donating money. Sometimes it might be changing something in their own lifestyle. Sometimes it might be paddling in front of a seismic testing ship. But there's lots of different ways that we can all take action. And we wanted Surfers for Climate to be that like avenue to provide surfers with that opportunity. Mm. Mm, that's, um, I, I feel like that's one of the most uplifting parts about the climate emergency situation is that there are so many avenues to take action on so many different levels. Um, I've just been reading this beautiful book called All We Can Save. It's a really beautiful collection of poems and stories from women at the forefront of the climate movement. And it's edited by Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Catherine Wilkinson. And they so beautifully illustrate how intertwined gender, race, and social inequalities are in taking action on climate. And I was, I was reading an interview with Catherine Wilkinson, and, and she said this, um, quote, at a very basic level, people don't know how incredible the cornucopia of climate solutions is, or how deep and wide the toolbox of practices and technologies is. And that's just if you're looking at the things that actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Then you add in all the other leverage points for moving solutions forward, from shaping culture to changing policy, shifting capital, changing behavior. There are all of these other ways to intervene in the system. On the one hand, that can feel really exciting. And there's a sense of relief, like, oh, my gosh, there are so many things that we can do because we're already doing them, just not at the scale that it's needed to turn the tide. And it can also feel overwhelming. But when you think about the toolbox, that cornucopia of solutions, it also adds to the sense that there are so many ways to help and none of us has to do it all. I just... I wanted to dive right in and ask you about what kinds of solutions surfers in particular can be implementing in our daily lives and in, in more sporadic ways. I think um, there's so many, a giant list. Um, in our daily lives, we're obviously all in different living situations, so it doesn't apply to everybody, but like putting solar on your rooftop is a huge tick. Um, regenerative gardens in your backyard is another like massive tick obviously but then people who maybe don't have those opportunities with their living situation you can opt for green power when you're purchasing your power from the retailer where we invest our money is an absolute massive one so um, your super or your banking really try and keep that money in institutions or companies that aren't investing into fossil fuels and there's a few out there you can look up uh organization called market forces has an incredible list um, and really a great scorecard on where you can kind of see where that goes and that's one of the fastest ways that we can see change Another thing is we can look at how we eat. You know, obviously a plant-based diet for the most part has a lower carbon footprint, but also there's so much power in just eating locally as well. So trying to go to your local farmer's markets and connect with the people who grow your food and also seems so much more nourishing for your body as well when you know where your food's grown. And I think another really important thing that we should all be doing as surfers is learning what country we're on and the values of the traditional owners from the land, the amazing stories that we got told by Andy that we spoke about earlier and just investing some time into learning the history of the place that you're on and ensuring that 
you can learn as much as you can about the local wildlife and ecology to really make sure that we can be the best custodians moving forward, looking after the, the land that we're surfing and, and living on. What else? There's so many other things. Um, how you vote is another absolutely massive one. We all know that there's only so much that we can do at home. Um, and if we are going to live in the current system, then, you know, it requires massive systemic change and politics is the, you know, what governs us. And so we need to, we need to look at who we vote for. Like you need to vote for the climate. We need to vote for the environment, need to vote for the oceans. And so before you head to the ballot box, make sure that you do a bit of research and, and also on a political front, like, those MPs are working for us and they re- they're there to represent us. And the same goes for your local council as well. So if you really want to see change, then you need to let these people know, whether it be writing, contacting, calling your local MPs. Most of them are really happy to sit down and have a chat. Um, and the same with your local council. Like they, You can pass motions through your local council to see the changes that you want in your community. So all these people are, are there for us. And then, of course, there's like volunteering at non-profit organisations, which I think is a really great way when you're feeling a little bit lost, like you've got a little bit of extra spare time on your hands. Everybody has this amazing superpower, I think, Sometimes that might be in the form of, you know, being a great surfer or being an amazing storyteller or it might be your art or, like, how good you are at accounting or (laughs) something that, you know, a lot of these non-for-profit organisations really need to help out to help them get to their end game to, to reach their goal, which is, you know, a lot of the time working towards these larger system changes. And then there's obviously turning up to protests, like the kids' school strike for climate events are, you know, a sure way that, you know, we can really start to see change as well as anything that's happening locally. There was a seismic testing ship heading across to King Island a couple of weeks ago and it was docked in the Bay of Geelong and after exhausting all the formal channels of trying to oppose this, like riding into Nopsema and talking to our MPs and even our local councils had opposed what was, you know, planned for out there. The seismic ship was still going ahead and was like trucking over to King Island. So we're like, we're going to take this opportunity to try and delay it and stop it all we can. So we paddled out in the portage along in front of the ship and some other people did some other more non-violent direct action um, at the port gates, which was great. But it's all things like you just got to find the thing that you're comfortable with and that you're prepared to do. Um, and like I said earlier, it could be, you know, that you are really great at making money and so donate to some of the non-for-profits that are doing the work if you don't have time. Um, or it could be something as simple as, you know, altering where you buy your food from. But there's lots of things that we can all be doing. Wow, what a list. That's great. How do you respond to people who perhaps come up and ask you, oh, what do I f- choose? Like, how do, what do I focus on? You know, because climate change is a very big two words and it encompasses a lot and at this point in time a lot of us are localized in our local government areas and uh, you know there's plenty to choose from in each of our areas when it comes to caring for country 
How do you respond to people, say, who are living in Victoria and give a shit and want to do something about it? Um, that we need your help and very much welcome it. I'd say, you know, during COVID times, I think looking in your own backyard literally has been the one thing that we can all probably do with the most success, I would say. And I, you know, I think we've all seen it that since COVID and these lockdowns and obviously people in Melbourne who've been locked down for what seems like over a year now, we've all gotten this deeper connection to the outdoors and these places that we love so much. And so I would almost say that that's the first step that, you know, when I, when I chat to people, like, what can I do? Like, go outside, go for a surf, like go for a run, go for a hike and really just bury yourself and immerse yourself in these wild places that you can connect with the earth that we love so much and then, you know, moving on from that, like, obviously, like, everything that we do makes a difference, but, like, setting up a little garden in your backyard or, like, supporting all these local businesses that, you know, in itself are cutting down on the emissions from the transport of the items that we're purchasing, you know. So, like, trying to, like, support local community and then, you know, if we give the earth a chance, it can regenerate itself. Like it's so amazing and wonderful and powerful. So just making sure that we're looking after these local places that we have. And sometimes that might be as simple as a beach cleanup, or it might be planting a few plants, um, or it might be trying to stop a gas rig from going in (laughs) and destroying something. So, you know, there's lots of different things I think that that like everybody can act on, but most importantly, take care of your own backyard. Mm. Yeah, you've really steered Surface for Climate toward thwarting further natural gas exploration here in Australia. I was curious to know why you've chosen that focus on reducing our dependence on natural gas. Why has that been the solution that you've really focused on? Because gas is a polluting fossil fuel. And we need to stop creating more emissions in general. I would say there's a lot of our precious coastline that's very close to waves that I love. Like, for example, off Newcastle, the the Newcastle Central Coast, Sydney coastline is threatened from being opened up into a gas field. And, you know, that also threatens... The marine animals, you know, there's potential of leaks or spills. Um, and then gas is labelled as this, you know, natural gas, like it's a clean energy, but it is not a transition fuel. It is a fossil fuel and it is polluting. And there's a lot of other gases. I'm not going to get into the science of it, but like the methane that's in gas is like over 80 times more powerful as a polluter than carbon dioxide in itself. And so, you know, it's it's not an answer as we transition, like these renewable energy sources um, or the re- renewable energy technology is already created. It's just a matter of implementing them and to be investing in a polluting fossil fuel that also threatens our oceans is something that I personally can't, stand by and watch happen without trying to do all I can 
to stop it. And I think adding on top of the fact that there's proposals in for the two places that I call home, which is off Newcastle and now here in Victoria in the Otway Basin, it's too close to home. And so I think it comes back for me as that, of that thing as like you have to protect your backyard and I think of the ocean as my backyard and both my backyards are being cut up and sold off to big oil and gas companies. Mm, what a motivator. I think we also saw like with the fight for the bite as well how the surfing community will unite under that issue because they see how threatening it is for our coastlines and so I think that it's also a really good avenue to motivate surfers to act because they they know like they already are aware of how threatening that exploration is but then you can sort of filter in other climate messages to them as we're going. I'm mm. curious about n- spills with natural gas. What is, I mean, obviously, almost all of us know what it looks like when crude oil is spilled into the ocean. It's devastating and, um, and catastrophic ecosystemically. What does a natural gas spill or leak look like and what are the implications for marine ecosystems? So firstly, a lot of these leases in the ocean are for oil and gas. Primarily a lot of the ones that I was just talking about off Newcastle and down off the Oway Basin are targets for gas primarily. But where there is gas, there's also a high chance that there will be oil or some oil. So I think that's something of note is that like there is potential of oil getting out. And then gas almost always leaks, so there is some type of leakage which sort of looks like an oily sheen on the surface of the water. It evaporates quicker than oil does, so it's probably not quite as threatening as like an oil spill would be. But, you know, I know, Dave, you've spent a bit of time down in the Otways. Like, it's just like South Australia with massive high rugged cliffs, a lot of beautiful and thriving marine animals some of which are also found nowhere else on earth. And so the idea of putting that at risk or in any kind of danger is just like not okay. Mm. Before I came to Australia, I didn't really know about natural gas or gas powered like cooking appliances, for example, or gas powered hot water. Um, It was unique to my experience in Australia to see houses hooked up to gas that way. Many of us do still have natural gas powered homes. How do we subvert that system? Well, I think that's a problem that needs to be tackled, but something that the government could definitely help us out with. So I don't think it's something where we all need to go and throw away our brand new gas heaters or cooktops. But, you know, when they wear out and it's, which is inevitable, it will happen. Uh, and there is a need to purchase new equipment. We need to be replacing that with electric appliances, electric heating, electric cooking. And the government already actually has some subsidies on certain appliances, but they need to improve that and they need to take like efficient gas heaters off that list and transition that to, you know, efficient electric heaters. And then we can be powering by renewable energy. There's also home bio gas products that you can get. and Biodigesters. Yeah, biodigesters that you can get that you put your kitchen scraps and even your 
you can hook your toilet up to and uh, create your cooking gas through that small little system in your own backyard, which would keep food scraps out of landfill as well. Uh, and also is a, is an illegal practice in Australia. That's how much of a hold the gas industry has on every single person's shithouse and kitchen sink. It's like the tendrils of that industry reach right into all of our houses and uh, stop us from legally doing that. Um, so mm. we can choose to do that if we like and keep it to ourselves. Probably feeding it to us as safety reasons or something as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's room there as well for that to be a personal decision that people could do. It's not hard to go online and look at bio tents and uh, biodigesters for the home and, you know, step away from that old tech, really. Yeah, and I think that's the key, exactly like you said, is stepping away from the old tech. There's so many amazing solutions now that we can bring into our home. It's just a matter of implementing them. I was curious to ask you about how the 6th IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate report landed for you in your work? Uh, I would say that it was sad, urgent, probably didn't tell me a whole heap of things that I hadn't already kind of gathered. Um, but more than anything was just another reminder that time is really running out and that every single fraction of a degree really matters and that we need to do everything that we can with more urgency than we really thought beforehand before that report came out. So it's confronting and it's hard-hitting, but probably not as terrifying as sitting through the Black Summer bushfires, <laughs> actually experiencing those things firsthand or, you know, visiting the Great Barrier Reef and seeing a section that you visited a couple of years ago completely coral-bleached and then another section next to it completely wiped out from a cyclone. So, you know, for me, it's always those real-life, first-hand experiences that are the most terrifying and confronting, but you can't deny a report and, like, we need to act immediately. Mm. How do you do the balance? So you have an amazing young son and you have a... Uh surfing addiction as strong as ours. <laughs> as strong as anyone's, <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And, uh, and you really are embedded in the work you're doing. How can you manage all that and keep your head above water and wake up with a, you know, a bounce in your step and keep going so that others may hear how you do that and, and uh, find their own way of doing that too perhaps? Uh, well, firstly, and I think you guys probably know this very well, that I'm generally a scattered mess on an everyday basis. <laughs> 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 um, pretty unorganized and definitely let some aspects of my life, like house cleaning, slide from time to time. <laughs> Lauren, for the people who can't see her right now, has her hands up in the air going, yes, me too. I'm <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a sandy floor. It's just like <laughs> when your bed's about an inch thick, that's when you need to change the sheets. <laughs> I'll um, be quoting you on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say for me, you know, a lot of this work that I do is all for my son. You know, 
I see as a parent the most important thing that I can do is providing racing with a safe and stable flourishing future and climate change is one of the biggest risks to his future and so that's why I try and do everything in my power to make a difference and so when I do a lot of these things like you know if we go to you know protests at the city or you know, when we're going to meet our MP and things like that, like I often try and involve him into it. So I try and make that an activity that we can do together because then not only is it great to bond and spend the best family time that we can, it's also showing him that like we, as much as humans are part of the problem, we can also be part of the solution. And I think that in itself brings a lot of hope is that we have created this current situation that we're in, but like, let's get out of it and let's be positive because if we're just going to doom and gloom and be sad, then nothing's going to get fixed. So mm. let's immerse ourselves in the place that we love the most. So out here in beautiful Wadawurrung country, in the ocean, you know, sometimes going bushwalking. But like you said, I have a surf addiction. So <laughs> the, uh, the beach <laughs> often wins. And yeah. we just we can walk through the bush with our boards under our yeah, arms. Yeah, on the, the way to the thing. beach. Just, on the way to exactly. The yeah, <laughs> yeah, I just choose a different beach. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so just try and like spend as much time in nature, and and you guys probably feel the same. Like to me, the ocean is my best friend. It's a place where I go when I'm sad and I need to have a cry. It's a place I go to when I'm happy and I need to celebrate something or it's a place I go to when I'm lonely and need to spend time with someone that I love. And so it's like the ultimate, you know, rejuvenator is that luckily my surf addiction also lets me spend time with the one thing that brings me the most happiness in life. Mm. 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 Bindi, I wanted to get back to that idea of intersectionality in climate activism and what an important part of forming Surfers for Climate that's been for you. How has the process been, you know, working within surf culture, which is notoriously young, white, heteronormative, masculine, exclusive? How has it been for you trying to create a movement that is diverse, pulling together um, diverse voices into surface for climate an amazing journey i would say <laughs> i think you know probably like you lauren like being a female surfer we've already experienced what it feels like to be on that outer at times and so that was one thing that we really wanted surface for climate to be was this inclusive space where if we sort of believe if you ride a wave, then you are a surfer. Like it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how long you've surfed. Like if you ride a wave and love the ocean, then you are a surfer. And so just wanted to create this space where people from all different backgrounds, identities, you know, races, beliefs, religions, and even socioeconomic status, like everybody could come together and do you know everything that we could to protect to protect the one thing that we love the most which is the ocean and I think that's the one thing that I love so much about surfing is that when you're out there in the water the ocean sees you know no color no sex no 
bank account, no job status, <laughs> no religion. And so try and bring some of the lessons that we've learned from being out there in the ocean to our organization. And so we have, you know, some amazing people that are connected with the organization, but definitely always out there looking for anybody who doesn't fit the standard mold of what a surfer is supposed to be to step in and take the limelight and be a spokesperson for Surface for Climate. So if you're one of these people and you're listening, like get in touch <laughs> because we'd love to have you involved. Mm. That's so great. I am. Um, I just wanted to quote All We Can Save. Again, the introduction by the editors is, is so beautiful um, and they so succinctly illustrate this sort of co-challenges of our time between dealing with social inequality and climate emergency they write, the same patriarchal power structure that oppresses and exploits girls, women, and non-binary people, and constricts and contorts boys and men, also wreaks destruction on the natural world. Dominance, supremacy, violence, extraction, egoism, greed, ruthless competition. These hallmarks of patriarchy fuel the climate crisis just as surely as they do inequality, colluding with racism along the way. Patriarchy silences, breeds contempt, fuels destructive capitalism, and plays a zero-sum game. Its harms are chronic, cumulative, and fundamentally planetary. Yeah, I just felt like that really speaks to the charge to all of us who are engaged in caring for country to also know that we're only going to treat the land as well as we treat one another, as well as we treat ourselves. And so it's um, it's a major task <laughs> to, hold, to hold the complexity of... Um, social and environmental realities at the same time okay then i asked the two of you um have we come anywhere in the line of how we treat the women and the girls in our surfing culture in your very young and beautiful lives <laughs> as young surfing women have you seen any positive changes there so many so many positive changes and yet I can still, I've been doing this the last few days, just flicking up some of the more central surfing media news outlets and still seeing very few women represented. What yeah. ones? Did you look at that one Surfline? Uh, Surfline. Is that the one you talked about? Yeah. Swellnet. Yeah, quite well, a few. Quite a few. We've got to talk about it. Like, you can't, we can't pussyfoot around this shit yeah. anymore. It's yeah, ridiculous. If that's what's happening, then we don't be nice about it because... That's not how we're going to sort the problem out. So if they're – because, you know, at this point, the way I see it is that that space, those mirrors are turning into kind of mono, mind monocultures where there's just two or three to represent millions yeah, of surfers around the world. Yeah, and then so. Surfers Journal, I was just sort of digging through the sliding headlines, wave, Wavelength magazine in Europe, just looking like, we're okay, we have come so far culturally. There's no doubt about it. Equal pay in the WSL, that was a m massive change for the highest level of competitive surfers. But as far as the trickle-down effect, we can still do so much better. We've got a long way to go to really having proper representation of women to start. And then, I mean, that's not even considering the massive lack of representation for people of color. Yeah, I would agree. We've definitely come a very long way, but I feel like in a lot of surfing subcultures, it's still very predominant. 
Um, and that can differ from where you surf that day. <laughs> you know, like you can go to here in Victoria, like I can go and surf Point Road night and there'll be more women in the water than there will be men. But I'll go the other way and go west or, you know, maybe somewhere in Torquay that's more of a predominant shortboard spot and I'll be the only woman in the water and get looked at a bit weird when I'm paddling out down the beach. And the same is, like, you pick up certain magazines and there'll be a pretty good representation, but then, you know, other magazines are like, wait a second, <laughs> did they really just say that? Did is that this really 1990 just or what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, agree, we definitely have a long way to go, but um, the needle is shifting. Hmm. Yeah, I find that an interesting area for us to look at with the surf organism and thinking about, uh, okay, how do we carry each other along into these ecologically minded ventures and or protective ventures to look after a, a, a piece of country or whatever it is. And I think in the same breath, just like you both illustrated then, there are really positive things that are happening. There's lots of wonderful little pockets and individuals and then there's, you know, broad swathes that are, are quite a mess still. And mm. and so I feel like that plays into, I guess, the the thinking to create surface for climate is that, okay, let's unify to a degree, let's support each other so that those little pockets where there are, you know, just as many women as there are men in the water, there are also pockets where the surfers will do anything to care for that stretch of coast. And speaking of working collaboratively and and more gently in some ways, one of my favorite things to do, maybe unlike you, Dave, is not necessarily to call people out publicly, but maybe to, you know, when I'm looking at a surf website going, okay, what stories are missing here? Is there conversation around environmental issues, around climate activism? Are, is there representation of women? If there's not, then I'm going to take the time to reach out to the editor, to the social media account, whatever it is, and just say, hey, I noticed that these stories are missing. Why don't you consider doing one? I'll write it. You know, that's just a small way to not be so confrontational, but also be part of shifting that needle. That's your superpower, Lauren. Yes. Right there. Oh. <laughs> one of your one of your many superpowers, but that is it. Right well, there. I didn't mean to call myself out, but I just think it. It's just it's something perfect. that anyone can do. You know, you're looking at a social media account and you're going, there's there's no women here. Let them know. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a violent, aggressive attack. Just let them know that it's important. And, um, and yeah, that's something we can all do anytime. Yeah. And, I mean, Lucy Smalls, I don't know if you've seen what she's been doing in Sydney, like such yeah. such great, amazing work with um, trying to introduce the bill into New South Wales that – all sports have equal pay for men and women, which is, you know, hats off to her. She's done such an incredible job at not only making the topic front and centre, but actually doing something to change it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the campaign's called Equal Play for Equal Pay. And um, yeah, I think they're calling for people to sign on and support that campaign now. Did you have any other questions? Yeah, actually, I think it'd be interesting to touch on the the fact that we all get frustrated and like I've seen us all when we're hanging around a fire after surfing and we're having, you know, yarns or whatever and we get all fired up. I've seen you 
get the fire in your eyes too, Bindi. I know I, I get it. And I have those moments like 10 seconds ago where I was like basically thinking, you know, fuck those internet companies and all that <laughs> stuff they're doing to our beautiful culture and blah, blah, blah. And it's a silly little moment and it's an anger place to start from but not to dwell in. And I was thinking, I was just wondering, like, how do you, how do you deal with that fire in your belly that you can use to propel you forward? And at times, you know, we can all get sucked into the, the anger thing. What do you do when you feel that and you don't want to stay there in that feeling? Go surfing. <laughs> I would say that I've definitely in the past put myself in a few situations that I regret from, you know, acting upon that instant feeling of anger. Um, so in my wiser years, I have done my best <laughs> <laughs> to try and just, like, sit on it for, you know, a day, might be a week, until you can really come up with more of a, like, strategic plan to tackle the problem. So, you know... Um, surfing always helps to just release that like first little bit of anger come back at things with a clear mind but um yeah really try and think about things more strategically and like what's your end goal and how are you going to get there and I think I've just gone through this process campaign planning to try and stop gas drilling in the Otway Basin and it was such a great process. Like I often will go through it in my head, but to sit down and put everything on paper, I was like, wow, that's really refreshing and like feels empowering in itself to now just have all of this stuff down on paper and have a plan and way that you know you're going to tackle something. So I would definitely, yeah, definitely say to sit back, go for a wave. If you drink beer, have beer and think about it, come up with a plan. <laughs> mm, great. Awesome. Great. I think it's a really helpful thing to share and you share it well. And, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I, I, I'm sure you have been experiencing it when you are talking with the communities down there and, like, going to visit the little towns or bumping into local surfers and and that people who are without a job and don't have an option and choose to work with the gas companies are probably angry that they don't have another option and then, you know, other people who are wanting for all that gas industry to stop are angry because they're still going and how we, yeah, how we deal with that, how we move through that rather than just sort of switch off and just tune the whole thing out. I think it's really helpful for us to hear each other's uh, ways of getting through that. Oh, absolutely, and just collaborating and coming up with, you know, the best solution in the end and I think, you know, that's, the big part of the problem in these small communities is that a lot of the people there do rely on these industries for work. Like Port Campbell is kind of a perfect example of that. But, you know, I can't speak for everybody in Port Campbell, but the few people that I have spoken to have said, like, we need a job, but we don't need to work for the gas industry. So we're not passionate about needing to work for the Otley gas plant, but we need a job. And it doesn't matter where that comes from. And so I think, again, it just comes back to, you know, where the investments are going. Like, you know, all these things cost millions of dollars to build. Let's put that into renewable energy or backyard solutions or so many other better, more sustainable ways of living than ripping and sucking fossil fuels out of our oceans, burning them up and destroying our climate. 
Special thanks to Patagonia for making this episode possible. They're a certified B Corporation and founding member of 1% for the planet. Patagonia is recognized internationally for its commitment to product quality and environmental activism. Thanks also to our sound engineer and musician, Shannon Soul Carroll. On behalf of myself, Lauren Hill, and my co-host, Dave Rastovich, thanks for listening with us. We'll be continuing today's conversation on Instagram, where we're at Water People Podcast. Thank you.